That was the Nikun from Elo Neshama, the notion that um, gratitude for our souls. And I actually, I'm not sure I can think of any religious belief more important than the idea that all humans have a soul. Whatever we mean by that, whatever we think of that, some notion that there is depth to the human being beyond the surface, depth to the human being beyond the face and the mind. And um, that we are fundamentally transcendental beings. We are eternal. There's an eternal dimension to the human, um, giving them infinite dignity. And so, um, yeah, so anyways, just coming off Yom Kippur. Hope everyone had a nice Yom Kippur. And uh, now we rush into Sukkot. It's like, it's like we get hit left and right. I, like I sometimes I wish we could space these things out a little bit. It's like judgment day. Then it's like atonement. Then it's like now get happy and go build a sukkah and simcha Torah. It's like let's space these things out a little bit. You know, it's a lot of intensity. Um, and then because and then there's a gap until Hanukkah. You know. So, anyways, um, I hope everyone is doing well. And today's a really a really great one. You know, some of these. Um, I I don't like to be academic, and um, some of these sessions necessarily have to be a little bit just because they are very technical but um but i i'm more interested in the the personal meaning we can make in, of our lives and grow in our in our own moral spiritual development and kierkegaard certainly pushes us in that direction uh certainly an intellectual but very much um you know the founder of existentialism and so session 21 session 21 um I, uh, you know, we, we, we originally promoted this as 40. It's probably going to be more like 45 just because I continue to feel very unsettled with just how many white men were the thinkers for 2000 years, uh, 2,500 years. And so I just want to squeeze in a whole bunch more people towards from the last 50 years who are women and, um, people of color, people of a very different orientation. In any case, um, we're still in the 19th century here. Um, lots of interesting things happening. But before we jump in, let's do a little poll question from Kierkegaard. This is what Kierkegaard would ask you today if he was alive. <laughs> can faith ever surpass ethics? Option one, yes, faith can call us to contradict a weak human understanding of ethics. Ooh. Option two, no, our ethics are always more important than ideas emerging from faith. Option three, wow, yikes, holy, holy moly, no idea. <laughs> All right. 
So yes, faith can can call us to contradict the weak, weak human understanding of ethics. No, our ethics are always more important than ideas emerging from faith. And three, wow, yikes, holy moly, no idea. Wow, wow. Didn't totally expect that. 43% say yes, faith can call us to contradict a weak human understanding of ethics. Equal at 43% say no, our ethics are always more important than ideas emerging from faith. 14%, wow, yikes, holy moly, no idea. <laughs> so, all right, so we're going to have fun with Kierkegaard today. And I look forward to returning to that question if, it, if we feel called to return to it. Is the fate of a person determined by their surroundings? Or can we control our lives with the choices we make? In a world in which we seemingly always have a multitude of options to pick from, is so much choice even a good thing? Soren Kierkegaard was born in Norway and living in the 19th, 19th century Europe. He engaged in philosophy by responding to the German idealism that dominated the thinking of those around him, particularly the ideas promulgated by Hegel. Hegel's idealism, as we've discussed, viewed human progress through the lens of paradigm-shifting human developments. As such, for Hegel, people had no choice but to be products of the eras in which they lived. Kierkegaard, however, rejected Hegel's approach, which focused on human thought and society throughout history in favor of an approach that embraced the subjective position of the individual. According to Kierkegaard, each individual is free and self-determining. We can make real choices on how to act in the world, and it is our choices, not our surroundings, that determine who we are. While for both Hegel and Kierkegaard, we have a choice between hedonism and adherence to a higher sense of ethics, Hegel emphasized the impact of one's historical period and life conditions. It's contextual. How the political structures and religious ideas of one's time heavily guided one's life. Kierkegaard, however, proposed that we have total freedom, not in all things, but in the choices we make. But this freedom to choose, Kierkegaard believed, does not necessarily make us happier. Instead, it can cause a subjective predicament and make us full of dread. Once one sees the enormity of the possibilities before us, combined with our freedom to respond to them in any which way, a new anxiety is born. Kierkegaard calls it the dizziness of freedom. This dizziness of freedom is a huge part of the problem with being a modern person. Whatever job, life partner, or consumer acquisition you pick, you'll possibly regret it knowing you could have found something or somebody different. You will always feel inadequate by making the wrong choice. What this makes clear is that the apparent simplicity of pre-modern life can lead to more happiness than the modern condition to do anything one wants. You know, one of the cases that comes to mind for me, having spent time in Ukraine on a few different occasions, was meeting elderly people in Ukraine um, who longed to return to communism. We said, oh, isn't this wonderful? The wall fell. You're free, you know, from the Soviet Union. Um, they say, no, freedom isn't so great. I preferred like receiving my, you know, my check each week, my drop off of food each week. But I don't want freedom. I want food. You know, it was the same with the Israelites who once they got freedom from Egypt 
and they find themselves in the desert, they say, take us back to Egypt. We want fish. We got fish. We got fish all the time in Egypt. Right. Who cares about freedom when you can get fish? Right. Um, yes. There you, thanks, Gary. There's slavery and freedom and freedom and slavery. It's an interesting, um, you know, paradox. And um, and so what do we want? Do we want to be free or do we want, you know, to have our basic needs met? Um going back to Maslow, I mean, you know, just, you know, there is a hierarchy of things we need to need to meet. So assuming we can have all of our basic needs met, then yeah, freedom is great. But if it's a choice, a whole bunch of people are going to prefer to have their needs met than have something abstract like freedom in place. For me, Jewish practice can be an antidote to the paradox of freedom described by Kierkegaard. By limiting my life to the options within a set Jewish path, I and others find that there's a higher freedom in eliminating some of the overwhelming number of choices we can make. By following Jewish practice, one makes them smaller. By limiting your options, you can be basimcha, you can be joyful. Uh, one example I heard, and I, th I think I've used it before, maybe uh, maybe eight, eight to 10 weeks ago, um, was if you go on stage and you have no lyrics, all you're thinking about are the words you're going to sing. You're not thinking how beautifully you can sing the words. You're like, what words am I going to sing? I don't have any lyrics. But if you have lyrics already, you can then think about how beautifully you sing. So too, if one is kind of committed to a liturgy or a set of rituals, then one can think about the spiritual depth to infuse in them. But if one is constantly in a crisis of, geez, what liturgy do I use or what or what rituals do I use? Or Then it's hard to even think about the beauty of actualization. One is just thinking about kind of the, the baseline. What religion am I or what denomination am I? You know, so once one limits their freedom by committing to a path to a certain degree, a spiritual path, then one can think about being more joyful and, and adding beauty within that path. I won't say too much about this, but um, as some of you know, I spent Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur with people in recovery, people who are struggle with addiction. Um, hundreds of people struggling with addiction. And um, the AA world has been very meaningful for them. Um, and it gives them a book. It gives them a curriculum. It gives them a language, a shared language that they can go really deep with. Um, and it's amazing just how pervasive, whether one is Christian or Jewish or secular, um, how pervasive that language is in the recovery world, even though it's many decades old. And this notion of submitting to a higher power, uh, these steps to work through, and how much joy and liberation people have found kind of committing to that path, giving up to aspects of their freedom to submit to that path. The Jewish tradition often takes a counterintuitive position that it is better to do a good deed out of a sense of obligation than it is to do a good deed voluntarily. What? doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't it be much better to do something good voluntarily when you do it out of obligation? We learn in tractate Kiddushin in the Talmud, as Rabbi Hanina says, greater is one who is commanded to do a mitzvah and performs it than one who is not commanded to do a mitzvah and performs it. Right? There's one today who's going to donate $1,000 because they say, hey, no big deal. I'm not doing some great thing. I'm doing it because I have to. Uh, I'm a Jew. I'm I'm a mensch. I, I just give a thousand dollars because that's I because I, I I can afford it and 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 that's what I do. 
There's someone else who says, wow, like I'm going to choose to do this. I don't have any obligation to do this. It's just a nice thing to do. I feel really good about it. And the Talmud thinks the former is something better, something for us to grapple with. In Judaism, we understand that it's not truly satisfying to do whatever you want. Freedom instead is achieved by fulfilling our moral obligations and finding liberation in the next height, right? Yes, I, I've committed to X, Y, and Z. How do I go to the next level, right? We don't always have to remain in the same philosophical questions we had when, when we were in, in college. State, we stayed up late in college debating philosophical issues. Hopefully, we've graduated from those questions. Not that they, we have perfect answers, but we're on to better questions than we had when we were 18 and when we were 40, right? We're on to the next level. And so um, we, we, we continue to progress. This is because happiness cannot be sought out as the first step. There's greater joy when we know in moving toward becoming an actualized moral being than there is in living in the uncertainty of limit, unlimited choices. Good, Cheryl, good. Let's come back to that Maimonides question. Great. Kierkegaard would not disagree with the priorities of Jewish living entirely. For him, there are three rungs on which a person could live their life. The lowest is about the aesthetics, the senses of pleasure. These are people who go from hot tub to hot tub, to a glass of wine, to a glass of wine, to a great Netflix, to a Netflix, right? It is just in the sights and smells and touches. I want my day to be full of massages and hot tubs and, and alcohol. Um, that is kind of a, the lower rung of living life. Nothing wrong with those. It's just a lower rung, uh, according to Kierkegaard. If one makes the right choices to transcend that, then they move to the next rung, the world of ethics. I don't just live a life based on personal pleasures. I also live a life based on trying to be a moral person. Further up, one finds the truly religious life. Kierkegaard called such a person the knight of faith. They find their freedom when transcending ethics into the religious. Now, religious is a bad word these days, but um, the knight of faith is someone who moves into a higher realm of being beyond just the good and the bad, the moral and the immoral. There's a deeper meaning to life beyond the ethical. I'm sure on some level we can all relate to that questions of more of our personal mortality, questions of love, questions of connection, things that give us meaning in our lives beyond the ethical. While Judaism can be seen as offering a similar hierarchy of values, it is in fact fuzzier than that. Seeking pleasure isn't inherently worse than ethics or religious devotion, and ritual, unless it causes one to act unethically and violate the mitzvot, Instead, religion informs the ways in which we interact with the aesthetical, the aesthetics, and with ethics. These areas cannot be separated. They all touch upon one another. For Kierkegaard, your relationship to God is potentially more important than your relationship to other people. Yet for us, they are entirely intertwined. Well, not entirely. If you recall when we had uh, Daniel Hartman at VBM, not this last time, but two times ago, he talked about his book, um, Putting God Second. Putting God Second, which means primary should be people in ethics and Jewishly, and only secondary should be God. If you put God primary, you can do some atrocious things. Um, in any case, 
here we see a case for where they're not higher in a hierarchy, but intertwined. We read in the book of Leviticus, Sefer Vayikra, love your fellow as yourself. I am the Lord. So most people only quote the first part. kamocha. You shall love your fellow as yourself. But the second part of that verse is I am the Lord. The religious and the interpersonal are rendered in the same sentence, at least in a language with punctuation. For Kierkegaard, though, there are potentially moments when religious um, triumphs over all. His principal example of this night of faith was the first Jew, Abraham, though for reasons we might not all agree with. In the story of the binding of Isaac, Kierkegaard took Abraham to be a hero. Why? Because in Kierkegaard's thought, ethics is relegated to the human realm. One need not be religious to know how to act ethically. Secular people can be just as ethical or more ethical than a religious people, of course. If religion is to truly mean to be an encounter with the divine, it must exist at a level that is in some sense beyond ethics. The religious is beyond the ethical. Therefore, Abraham becomes a knight of faith when he confronts God's command to sacrifice his son. Because he recognizes this act is incomprehensible at the level of ethics, simply unethical. Following it requires a leap of faith. God's command to Abraham is described by Kierkegaard as a teleological suspension of the ethical, a controversial idea that some in recent Jewish thought have actually embraced, including Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, pictured here, who wasn't always Kierkegaardian, but became so in his later work. The Rav was Kantian in his earlier thinking. Pure ethics, right? Remember, remember Kant? Religion is dead, so we're going to replace religion with ethics, and we're going to have these tools to do that so that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, even though we're more skeptical of religion. We still need to be moral. And so he's going to make it about ethics. Primarily. Okay, that's, you know, more or less. Okay, Kierkegaard. But so, so the Rav is, is Kantian in his earlier thinking. And as he gets older, he becomes Kierkegaardian. He says, ah, ethics aren't enough. And so he becomes Kierkegaardian and, and, and embraces this notion of Abraham, of Abraham as the knight of faith. And it reflects the notion that ethics are conceived by human beings may at times be suspended in order to actualize the divine will. See in his earlier philosophical writing, Soloveitchik, a foundational figure in modern orthodoxy, drew upon the thought of Hermann Cohen, a major proponent of neo-Kantianism. Cohen's emphasis on the, on the way human beings construct the rules of math and physics was a large influence on his work, Halachic Man, which argues that halakha, can be formalized in a way that is similar to how mathematicians deduce new equations and theorems. In Soloveitchik's later writing, though, he famously portrays the lonely man of faith. If you've never read The Lonely Man of Faith, it should make your top 10 Jew books of Jewish reading as a figure who never fully, never fully feels comfortable in the social conventions and ethics of their time. Here he embraces Kierkegaard's understanding that faith may not align directly or be comprehensible in the world one finds themselves. Um, 
I'm trying to think of an example that will resonate for us all, not feel absurd, but it'll come to me as we continue. Kierkegaard is considered the father of existentialism. Here's how um, that can be identified, but through four key components. Number one, ex existence is always particular and individual. Always my existence, your existence, his existence, her existence. What we're doing here is defining existentialism through four principles. Existentialism is not about the human condition, human nature. We don't want abstract ideals we're going to throw upon all humanity. Rather, existentialism says existence is particular to each person. Number two, existence is primarily the problem of existence. It is therefore also the investigation of the meaning of being. What does it mean that I exist? It's a problem. It's not a, it's not a feel-good notion um, necessarily, or at least in its early stage. That investigation, number three, is continually faced with diverse possibilities from among which the existent must make a selection to which he must then commit himself. Number four, because those possibilities are constituted by the individual's relationships with things and with other humans, existence is always a being in the world. It's not a cosmic question, an other world question. It's a question of what it means to exist in this world, in this life, in this moment. These were radical moves to make at the time. The idea that knowledge and truth moves from the objective to the subjective, from the collective to the individual. In existentialism, the world has no intrinsic or obvious meaning. As, um, uh, what is his name? Viktor Frankl, the founder of Logotherapy, the Holocaust survivor psychologist, once wrote, the question is not what is the meaning of life? The question is what is the meaning of your life? Right? The question of the meaning of life is an absurd question. How could you slap that down on everyone? The question is what is the meaning of your life? Would very much fit into the existentialist tradition. While for Hegel, the meaning of our lives was limited by our respective historical periods in the march of human progress, Kierkegaard believed we could transcend that through the act of faith, right? Kierkegaard is not going to be an activist that wants everyone to get on board with the call of our day for the cause of our day, right? Submit ourselves to this movement, right? Rather, it is about, um, it's about me. And, and I don't mean that in a selfish way although one could interpret it that way. Even though Kierkegaard was willing to open all doors in the search of meaning and purpose, he in no way abandoned his faith in God, as his successors in existentialism do, most notably Jean-Paul Sartre, as we will see later, and uh, as we'll talk about Simone de Beauvoir with feminist existentialism we will look at. It is notable that Kierkegaard never got married he was once close to marriage, but ended up calling it off. <laughs> Here's something famous that Kierkegaard said, or allegedly said, um, that has been documented. Um, and I quoted this to someone recently who told me he has no interest in getting married ever. Um, if you marry, you will regret it. If you do not marry, you will regret it. 
if you marry or if you do not marry, you will regret both. Whether you marry or you do not marry, you will regret both. Laugh at the world's follies. You will regret it. Weep over them. You will regret it. If you laugh at the world's follies or if you weep over them, you will regret both. Whether you laugh at the world's follies or you weep over them, you will regret both. Believe a girl, you will regret it. If you do not believe her, you will also regret it. If you believe a girl, you do not believe her, you will regret both. Whether you believe a girl or you do not believe her, you will regret both. If you hang yourself, you will regret it. If you do not hang yourself, you will regret it. If you hang yourself or you do not hang yourself, you will regret both. Whether you hang yourself or you do not hang yourself, you will regret both. This gentleman is the sum of all practical wisdom. <laughs> I don't think he was trying to be humorous there, although I find it hilarious. I could see some of you also do. <laughs> the anxiety and discomfort included by choice pervaded every aspect of his life. This is in stark contrast with the Jewish view of marriage, or the mainstream view of Jewish view of marriage, being both almost unambiguously positive, right? That marriage is hard and not, and not necessarily fun, but it's a good idea to have a life partner, as well illustrated by L the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who reportedly told his doctor, the time I devote to have tea with my wife every day is as important to me as the obligation to put on tefillin every day. Now, if you know anything about Chabad, they wanted to fill in revolution. They're not marching for workers' rights. They're not marching for immigrant rights. They're not marching for pro-choice movement. They are marching for tefillin. If you're a Chabadnik, you want everyone to put on tefillin, or at least all the men. You want all the men to put on tefillin um, for, for the Chabadnikim. And so that's one of their campaigns. Another one of their campaigns is that every woman lights Shabbos candles. And they think we bring the Mashiach. We bring the Messiah. If every Jewish man wears tefillin, if every Jewish woman lights Shabbos candles, this is what we got to do. So tefillin is pretty serious to this guy, right? But then he says, having tea with my wife every day is just as important. Um, that's an interesting uh, comment because tefillin is a mitzvah deraita. It's an obligation from the Torah, whereas having tea with one's wife can't be found in any codification of Jewish law. Um, and he was a religious fundamentalist. I know that's a, that's a bad phrase these days. Uh, in his case, I don't mean it so badly, um, although I'm not a fan of re religious fundamentalism. Um, I think he was a very decent person and did a lot of re real good things in the world. Um, but Chabad is a religious fundamentalist movement. It's a messianic movement. And they try to deceive people that it's not, that because they're hyper-inclusive, um, but reject pluralism. Um, there's one truth, it's their truth, but you're welcome into it. You can have a drink, you can have a hug, you can be a part of it. Um, and I think it's good for the world, even though I reject their religious fundamentalism. I think Chabad is good for the world. I think they, they do a lot of nice things. And um, I think it's good that they're inclusive. They're, they're the only, they're the only um, inclusive Hasidic movement. Um, the Breslov movement is a little bit inclusive. Um, interesting enough, those are the only two Hasidic movements that don't have a living Rebbe. Every Hasidic movement has a living Rebbe, that is their authority. Authority. The Lubavitch movement, Chabad, um, he's dead and they didn't replace him. And in the Breslov movement, Rebbe Nachman is dead and they didn't replace him. Um, and those are the two that are the only two that are proselytizing movements. The rest of the Hasidic world is, is isolationist. They don't want to talk to anybody. Leave us alone. Leave us alone. If you're Satmer, we don't want to talk to you. Don't talk to us. Let us let us just have the freedom to do what we want. Right. 
Um, but Chabad and, and uh, Breslov are proselytizing movements. They want to bring people into their movements. They're not converting proselytizing movements. They're not trying to make non-Jews Jews. They're, they're against that. Um, in, in fact, they're even a, a kind of opposed to conversion by and large, um, with some rare exceptions. But they do want to bring Jews into their movements. In any case, um, anyways, uh, very de- a very decent person. And um, I know people believe he's the Messiah in, in big segments of his movement. Believe there's going to be a second coming. There's going to be a second coming of the Messiah. And it's him. He's going to come back from the dead. Um, um, and uh, that said, I mean, I do think he was probably the best candidate. This is kind of controversial to say. I do think he was probably the be- one of the best candidates for Messiah of the 20th century. Um, he, uh, yeah, I, I don't believe he was the Messiah, but um, I, I would put him in the top three best candidates <laughs> for who could have been the Messiah um, in any case. And so... Um, does Kierkegaard's philosophy blend right in with the wisdom that long has guided the Jewish people, like Kant's or Hegel's? Not really. But I think in addition to learning from Kierkegaard, we can look to Soloveitchik as a role model, as a model. Like him, we too may identify with different philosophers at different points in our lives, even ones whose ideas differ radically from each other. Kierkegaard, we learn, though, his ideas don't scream Judaism, has a deeply religious fulcrum. He just moves religion from a place of dogma and authority to a place of individual experience and commitment. This is not at all out of, not at all out of step with the founders of the Hasidic movement, who encouraged their followers not only to focus on the minute details of observance, but also to recognize that one's subjective inner experience was of great religious significance. It's not about checking the box that you did X, Y, and Z. Right, it's the inner experience that matters most. Right, Yom Kippur. Don't check the box that you showed up somewhere. Tell me you had a transformative experience. And so, if you're in a stage of life right now in which you're drowning in anxiety and, ex- and despair, it would be wise to turn to Kierkegaard. He's someone who's going to provide religious meaning, moral meaning to our, our despair. To conclude, we know from Judaism that there is absolutely a place for the objective and the communal. Still, Kierkegaard's existentialism can teach us not to ignore the subjective and the individual. Um, I think just one final comment before we open the conversation, friends, is um, I mentioned that he never got married. And if I recall correctly, I I think I'm 90 percent sure. I believe that taps into the um, Christian ethos, although only only certain denominations of Christianity, of course. Um, that you can only have one love ultimately, and that and that one love is God, and um, to love another person on an intimate level would jeopardize one's relationship to God. Um, think of a Catholic priest. Um, obviously, there's more reasons why Catholic priests don't get married, but I think I think um, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the primary reason is this idea of um, not in any way challenging or replacing. Uh, this this commitment to a one love, um, but but uh, but there's more to the theology. So if you or anyone else wants to weigh in on that, that would be great. So I think that's part of where Kierkegaard is coming from there. So um, in many ways, challenging the religious norms of his day, but still a, a very uh, let's call it faithful person rather than religious person. Okay, friends, lot to think about here with existentialism and Kierkegaard and all the other provocative things we threw out today. So would love to hear from you. Okay. Hi, Cheryl. Great. Hi, Hi Cheryl. 
Um, you said you were going to um, go back to the Maimonides level question. And then I just have two other things that I want to put out there. So this is my, this is my time. Um, uh, I was wondering if because of the, uh, the, the dizziness of freedom and the choices that we all have, if that's why divorce has become more prevalent, which you touched on you, the dizziness in the beginning, and then you touched on marriage and everything at the end. And if you marry, you regret it. If you don't marry, you regret it, you know, that kind of thing. So I was wondering about that. If, if you thought that that was like a thought process uh, regarding divorce. And then the other thing I wanted to ask was, who are the other two choices, your other two choices for the Messiah? <laughs> Oh, I was hoping nobody would ask that. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, um, I, I, I uh, put, I uh, put you on my top hundred, Cheryl. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to offend you that you're not in the top three, but I put you in my top hundred. <laughs> um, you know, so I think I would do better with a top hundred list than a top three. But I actually let's pause and throw that out to the group. If if you want to write in the chat, if you had to pick. Maybe you don't believe in a Messiah. Maybe you have no clue who the Messiah would be. But bracket all of that for a moment. Put it in the chat. If you were to have a, a vote for a possible Messiah of the last hundred years, who would you put as a possible candidate? Um, I'm, based on the amount of press coverage she gets, you would think it'd be Taylor Swift. Um, my gosh, it's like this country has nothing else to think about than who she's dating. <laughs> so nothing against her my daughters love her um, you know it's just like the obsession with celebrities in this country I, I can't understand it um in any case so yeah so who you want to put over there who are who is someone and it's an interesting question of of who who is righteous who is a bridge builder who brings us together do you think the dalai lama do you think mother Teresa? Do you think, um, is there another rabbi who comes to mind? You know, is there a um, secular thinker that comes to mind? Uh, is there a presidential figure? You know, I think people felt like Obama. I think when Obama won presidency, there was a base that felt like this is the messianic era. Like, oh my gosh. If you remember the feeling in America um, among among many people, uh, you know, you know, let's say about half. The, the, uh, I think there was a feeling that like the whole world, Jonathan Sachs, Gary says, Sachs is an interesting suggestion because I think that Sachs was probably the greatest global ambassador for Judaism alive when he was alive because his books reached further than any Jewish writer as a distinctively Jewish writer. He was on the interfaith scene as a bridge builder. He transcended the minutia that divided people. In some ways, that agitated people. They wanted him to be more political. But in other ways, he transcended that. And he, he had political critiques, but he went beyond the people. He got into kind of the trends at large. Oh, yeah. Ed Owata, yeah, thank you. That's, that's very flattering. <laughs> We're all doomed if I'm in anybody's top million list. <laughs> thank you. Um, does that make Trump the grand inquisitor? Okay, I'll just leave that one over there, Aglaia. <laughs> so good. All right. So anyways, um, you know, it's worth thinking about. You know, I used to write more controversial things than I do these days. I found it was just not worth um, the blowback I would get consistently. Um, but I used to say provocative things, not because I was trying to be provocative, but because I thought, you know, social media was there to express everything you thought. 
<laughs> and then I learned, oh, you can think a whole bunch of things. You don't have to always say it, you know. In any case, 10 years ago, um, I wrote something that was probably got the biggest blowback of anything I wrote, um, which might not sound so controversial to people here. But at the time, I was kind of positioned differently in the world. And I wrote about that we should replace the messianic idea as a person um, with uh, the notion of a messianic um, collective. Um, the notion that the messianic is a spirit, is a collective energy that we can tap into. Think back to Hegel for a moment. I'm not suggesting Hegel was saying that, but this notion of historical sweeping moves towards progress um, that go beyond kind of an individual, um, on a, a man on a donkey. You know, um, in any case, it is a classical foundational belief uh, in Judaism that there is a messianic figure. And, and I, um, I appreciate that that idea. Uh, in any case, um, as Cheryl, I will need to think about that more. And, and uh, I, I continue to welcome people's suggestions over there on who else could be a great messianic figure. Um, and and I, and I think that um, that this is a different question than who is a Lamed Vavnik. A Lamed Vavnik, Lamed, Lamed, Vav, uh, Lamed represents 30 and Vav represents six. There's a notion that at any given moment, there are 36 righteous people that hold up the world. Um, and that if one dies, another one is born or, or rises up to that level, that there are 36 people who are humble um, servants in the world who are so good that th they hold up the world. The Lamed Vavnik is a little bit of an anonymous uh, figure. The Messiah might be like a Lamed Vavnik, that they're not so known, they're just this quiet, righteous figure. But we tend to think of the Messiah more like a global influencer. I don't mean a social media influencer who's got three million followers because they say funny or interesting things. But I mean someone. Um, <laughs> thanks, Cheryl. It's a, yeah. It's a, after Yom Kippur, trying to humble myself. You're not helping me, Cheryl. But thank you. Um, but the the messianic figure um, is someone who might have a platform big enough that they can build bridges and bring people together across divides. And um, um, and that's an interesting thing to think about today, how we can support those types of people, because we're often skeptical of people with big platforms because many of them misuse it for themselves rather than for the greater the greater good. But those people who have the chance to help us achieve world peace because they're actually in touch with a whole broad array of people and can speak to different worlds. You know, unfortunately he stepped down from his position, but following Jonathan Sachs was a guy named David Rosen. He had a position once, which may sound prestigious. It was the chief rabbi of Ireland, but actually any one of us could have had that position because there's only like 50 Jewish families in Ireland. <laughs> um, in any case, he was on the global arena of speaking at all these global interfaith conferences um, inside fundamentalist Islam, inside, you know, the Vatican, inside the Far East, and not just talking theology, talking about climate change, talking about war, talking about, about things that really divide people. And he stepped down from his position at the AJC, um, but is now doing great stuff. Um, you know, in actually um, the UAE with this this house of worship that that has a Christian side 
a Muslim side and a Jewish side. If you haven't looked at this, this Abrahamic house of faith over there um, that he's now helping to consult for. In any case, very long-winded, a messiah. Dizziness of freedom, dizziness of freedom and divorce. Um, I am someone who believes that um, divorce becoming uh, more common um, compared to the historical movement of it being limited was a good thing. People for millennia were trapped in marriages and divorce provide becoming more common and more accessible and more equitable was a positive development in modernity. Um, and um, it is good for people to leave marriages that are, are, are bad for them both um, or are no longer serving them. That is a, a positive trend in particular for women who oftentimes had the more raw end in, in marriages. This was a liberation movement, making divorce more, more possible and normalizing remarrying someone who has been divorced rather than being tainted and having stigmas on people who have been divorced. So I think that in general, that's a positive thing. That said, like most modern positive developments, we've gone way too far. Um, the fact that more than half of marriages fail means there's a problem significant problem. And I think one of the many problems involved is exactly what you labeled Cheryl, this dizziness of freedom, this sense um, that I can have anyone, um, that uh, people are disposable, that I have the freedom to choose from so many. Um, and that, of course, is intertwined with the breakdown of dialogue, people not knowing how to talk about conflict so much anymore, working through conflict and relationships. The breakdown of empathy, as we've seen, you know, uh, you know, empirically documented, um, how empathy is on a decline, and just the notion in general of the modern person being discontent, right? Um, and a big part being because of this dizziness of freedom uh, of the consumer, constantly on Amazon, constantly on Travelocity, constantly trying to buy stuff. We've talked about this before. Choose new things. And that enters relationship too, that I can just unfriend people, you know, commonly. I can just drop people and pick up new people in my life as I want. And that feels liberating, but actually is a, is a real problem and commitment. And so too, we see that as well over here. So yeah, thank you for touching on that. I would consider, even though I, I, I consider, you know, in over the last few hundred years, divorce having been a positive movement, I would say that it's one of the great problem, moral problems of our day. How, how significant uh, divorce is. And I don't envy children who are marrying into this type of climate and th this type of uh, culture where, um, you know, mar marrying, you know, standing under a chuppah used to mean till death do us part, right? There was a sense that this is really a long-term commitment. And now there's a sense uh, of the seven-year itch. People talk about the seven-year itch in relationships. In any case, um, I'm going to pass over your first question in the interest of time, only because I think dealing with Sadaka right now would be um, just, it would take me 10 minutes to even tap into it. But Cheryl, I love, I love, I love your questions as always. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Aglaia, hi. Okay. So I don't know if this was, you kind of never responded to like the question that I asked you about whether or not you wanted to touch on that Agamemnon versus Abraham thing. So I don't know, but also just to throw this out there about divorces, um, I'm not convinced anything's actually changed because a lot of marriages were miserable. So I'm not really convinced anything has changed. And also divorce actually saved my life, first of all. And another thing though is that breaking off an engagement and an agreement, well, it wasn't exactly an engagement, an agreement to marry someone probably saved my sanity. So, you know, I'm not 
too convinced by it, but I don't know. Anyway, the main question was those about, about, do you really want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So good. So just on your first point, I think the notion that marriage was often miserable was, was not a pre-modern problem, as you know, like it's okay for, for marriage to be miserable. It's like the, 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 the modern problem of work being miserable, right. Of people not wanting to go to work one day when they wake up, right. Is like, what do you mean? Like, Throughout history, people work jobs they didn't like because that's what you do. Like you make money. I don't want to go work in a rice field all day, but that's what I do because I take care of my family. So too, like, I don't want to be married to this person, but that's what I do because I committed my life to this person. The notion that marriage should be happy is such a modern idea, that modern should be meaningful, that that we're going to sit down and have our our date night, that we're going to go out to coffee together and talk about our feelings together, right? It's such a, it's such a, it's such like a, a late 20th century idea. I'm not putting it down. It's a good idea that people, you know, are happy and and married. They're connected. But going back to Fiddler on the Roof, which I I mostly don't like. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof says Judaism is dead. Basically, it's for people who want tra- tradition. Is kind of something to laugh at. Something it, Judaism is nostalgic. It has no relevance to our day today. Right? It's like let's like think about the past. Uh, so I'm not a fan of uh, of uh, of it. In in any case, I know it's it's dear to many people in their hearts for many reasons, the, the melodies and stuff. Um, but, you know, if, if you recall over there, and we've talked about this before, but the, the, the whole question that he has for her of, do you love me? You know, she has no idea what he's talking about. She's like, what do you mean? I, 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 I like wash your underwear. What do you mean? Do you love me? Like, you know, I, I, I make you dinner every night, you know, but he wants as a modern person there to be there to be love, there to be connection in a way that, you know, pre-modern was just not an idea. We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go much further there. So yeah, so this idea that uh, okay, marriage was marriage was always kind of miserable, but now we 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 can exit it. Um, what was better, a world where we just embraced uh, where where everyone embraced marriage and embraced that marriage is not something that necessarily brings me joy, but it's a good thing to maintain marriage. It's good for kids. It's good for society. Um, or today, the notion that marriage is here to bring me joy, and if it's not, I'm going to discard it if it's not serving me and that more than half people get divorced. Okay. So much to talk about there. We can't even go there. We can't even go there. So, okay, good. So just to go touch, you know, briefly on Abraham, and then we're going to go to Gary Friedlander. How could we possibly touch just briefly on this? There's so much to say. And if you want to say something about Abraham binding, uh, the binding of Isaac, please write in, in the uh, chat. Um, uh, so that we can hear your perspective. I, I I take a positive approach to the story. My positive approach is that people engage in child sacrifice throughout history. Um, God doesn't want child sacrifice. And so God wants Abraham to get as close as possible to child sacrifice and then intervene to say, never again will you kill a person in my name, right? And so the story is a rejection of child sacrifice. Um, but wants Abraham to get as close as possible to it so that it can be fully rejected. It's, it, it, there's progress that we see We see there. That said, the notion that um, we can be called by God to do something deeply unethical is to me a deeply problematic idea. Um, in fact, a fundamentalist rabbi said to me once, um, the, the Islamic jihadists are, are right. They're right that if God tells you to kill the masses, you should do it. Um, they're wrong, though, because God didn't tell them that. <laughs> and so uh, he would say, of course, Abraham is a hero, because if God tells you to do that, you should be ready to do that. Um, anyways, there's countless, countless commentaries grap- grappling with Abraham with so many different perspectives. 
But if you want to share something on that, please write it in the chat so we can learn from you. Of course, one of my favorite approaches are the commentators that say Abraham misunderstood the command. Um, that God never said, kill him. They said, take him up. Um, and Abraham misunderstood. God would never command something unethical. And, and that's why God intervenes. Actually, not God intervenes. The angel intervenes. God's messenger intervenes, right? Saying, oh my gosh, what are you about to do? Don't do that. Gersonity says this, the Raubug. Um, and some others that um, it's a total miss that, that Abraham's failure was 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 in how we interpreted this. In any case, Gary, over to you, Freelander. Good morning, everybody. Shana Tova. Well, here's the book you were talking about. Uh, somebody I know gave it to me. <laughs> I find it interesting, and I think it's somewhat uh, uh, what on the topic of today because he he uh, Rabbi Daniel talks about. Patients, uh, patients, uh, uh, people that are uh, God toxic or uh, God, uh, what's the word you use, manipulative. Uh, and he goes on and talks about the importance of ethics. So the question that I really have is if you're in the far right movement, you know, you have one set of ethics or lack of ethics. And on the other side, on the left side, you have lots of ethics, but you don't necessarily have any religious guidance. Uh, uh, so you know, what's, your, what's your feelings there? Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. So first, you give me the opportunity for a VBM plug that on October 15th, we're having a debate between Rabbi David Saperstein, a reform rabbi who identifies as liberal, and Tevi, um, Tevi Troy, who um, is an Orthodox Jew and identifies as conservative. And they are going to debate um is judaism fundamentally lead us towards a liberal approach or a conservative approach and the their their point is not primarily to pr to prove their side right but to also model civil discourse um and how we can still have those conversations about how religion and politics intersect and influence us thank you alex for uh sharing that if you haven't registered yet i hope you will you can join online or in person um and um, and I think that is uh, very rich to do. And it is largely true that um, that um, traditional religious people tend to be more conservative, and uh, more liberal or secular religious people tend to be uh, more politically liberal. Of course, there's countless exceptions to that, but those general trends are true. And the problem that the you know to you just the slap down like you know um, oversimplifying terms, but we get the point that the right is overly influenced by religious submission, and the left is overly influenced by by uh, kind of a secularism, um, and and those ethics are fundamentally different, you know. And there's a great interview I did with this um, scholar who I'm kicking myself that I can't think of his name at the moment. But he's one of the leading psychologists today on on this left right divide, and he compares human human Kant, and uh, and part of what he gets at is our connection to emotion and our connection to reason, how those intersect with our religious sensitivities and our political sensitivities, and um, and he looks at how actually, I virtues that we would all consider noble, are held by different sides, and um, if we saw it through that lens rather than just like death penalty, abortion, war, taxation, uh, through the most political lens. But through those virtues, we would appreciate the other side more. He says, we all appreciate liberty. 
we all appreciate freedom. We all appreciate the notion of the sacred. We just give these virtues different weight. If you're conservative and traditional, you give the sacred great weight, more than if you're left and secular, where you're going to give more weight to something like equality, right? So he said, if we looked back at those virtues and how we're, we're, we're drawn to them, would pull us back. In any case, um, my gosh, in Israel, Yom Kippur is usually the one political quiet day of the year. I mean, I know that yesterday was the 50th anniversary, 50th, 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Um, and so that was not a very quiet day at all. But uh, the last 49 years have been pretty quiet. And unfortunately, yesterday was not. If you heard what happened in Tel Aviv, um, where the, the secular groups, largely secular groups, were opposed to judicial reform, uh, protested, and the religious groups who support religious reform were there. And the secular group um, was very hostile towards the gender separation that was used in the religious group in their prayer. They were praying at the protest with a machitza, a separation of genders. And they protested and took it down. And this, thankfully, I don't think got violent, but got, was incredibly intense and is really scaling up now. Um, so this question, Gary, is just so important um, and how we continue to look at that and how people's ideological commitments are almost predictable today. If they check the box of their ethnicity, of their religious denomination of their um of their political you know people are, are, are largely predictable and going back to consumerism that's why behavioral economics is so predictable people know what we're gonna buy because we're just rats in a race we're you know and and, and that's actually a good reminder of Kierkegaard of our freedom how do we break out of that Hegel once again largely thought we're bound to our historical context but Kierkegaard wanted us to transcend it um, we want to transcend that, gain our freedom. And so how can we do that? Next week, we're going to be talking about Thoreau. And Thoreau is fascinating for many reasons. But one of those reasons is that he can be kind of considered the founder of civil disobedience. You know, modernity is kind of uh, absurd like that. We call people the founder. Today, we call Kierkegaard the founder of existentialism. Like, what do you mean? Like, 2,000 years ago, there were existentialists, as we identify it. But, you know, they put systemic thought and they wrote books. And so we called them the founder. So, too, civil disobedience. Uh, Thoreau is the founder. I mean, Moses, what do you think he's doing over there with Pharaoh? Is he not the founder of civil disobedience? <laughs> right. So there are these earlier, you know, but he didn't write an academic book, you know, you know, on you know, systemic approaches. So, um it's uh, but in any case, I think it'll be fascinating to explore that. And I hope in the spirit of Kierkegaard, um, we can think a little bit about the, the meaning in our lives that transcends the ethical. For me, what inspires me most about religion is the ethical side the notion of tikkun olam, the notion of via mensch, the notion of uh, working on our character, um, our, our ethical responsibilities. Um, medical ethics and um, technology ethics and business ethics. I mean, I love that stuff. You know, uh, Musar, you know, and yet we know that um, a big reason that people join religious communities is not just because of that, but because they're seeking connection. They're seeking community. They're seeking tradition. They're seeking to tap into, to connect to God. And um, those things are not usually um, 
um, in tension with each other. But um, going back to Cheryl's point about tzedakah, oftentimes it can be. If we only donated money based upon that which would save the most lives, I mean, there are people who do that. But we also donate to things that give us meaning in our lives. There's people who donate to art museums and donate to donate to houses of worship and donate to educational programs. And we do that, not just the things that save lives, because we think meaning, meaning also matters. Whether we call that faith or religion or something else, we, we support meaning making institutions. We support, you know, being a part of something bigger than just the ethical. In any case, um, it might feel absurd when we put it in Kierkegaard's faith higher than ethics. But in all of our lives, we put things higher than ethics. We put our own our own uh, nail polish higher. We put our own, um, you know, barber higher. We put our own um, time with our grandchild higher, you know, than just pursuing the ethical. Now, that's not that's not immoral, but it, sometimes it's amoral, you know, to some degree. It's 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 something else. So it's worth us thinking about how we categorize the aesthetic, the ethical, and the the realm of faith in our lives. Have a wonderful day, Shana Tova, and I guess wow, we're now moving to Chag Sameach. Is it too early to say Chag Sameach? Okay, if you celebrate Sukkot, have a great Sukkot. See you next week for Thoreau.